Today on Pence Exchange, Political Borders and the Size of Nations. Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today, we will be joined by Enrico Spolaore, who is the Seth Merrin Chair and Professor of Economics at Tufts University and a research associate with the NVER. He's also a member of the C4 Research Network. His main research interests are in political economy, economic growth and development, and international economics. His publications include articles in prestigious academic journals such as the American Economic Review, the Quarterly Journal of Economics, and the Review of Economic Studies. Welcome, Enrico. Thank you very much. Thank you, Fernando. It's a pleasure to be here. We tend to think of political borders as exogenous artifacts that are imposed in a top-down manner by governments with imperial ambitions. And while this is true in some cases, there is a more significant case to be made for the alternative, where borders and jurisdictions are endogenous to the populations that draw them. A country's size and frontiers depend on the political and economic cost and benefits of sticking together or breaking up. Today, we will have Enrico Spolaure, a leading economist in this research area, who will talk about the optimal size of countries and hence why borders are drawn the way they are. So, Enrico, how are political borders defined? And I mean, in today's world, it's easy to identify them. When we, when we go back in time, the definition of political jurisdictions becomes plurier, and so does the definition of political borders. How do you see this connection between borders and the idea of nation states? Yeah, no, that's a very good question, because in fact, uh, now we have uh, almost a standard definition that probably comes back uh, you know, from, to us uh, from the 17th, 18th century, where you have uh, um, you need a government in full control of a territory and a population and uh, exercising a monopoly of legitimate coercion over the territory. So that's a classic definition that very often is used in political science. But as you said, it's, uh, it's a relatively you know, recent definition and it has never, you know, almost never been perfectly observed because you could always have uh, situations where you could have uh, a more than one uh, ruler ruling over a territory and so on. And now more, re more recently also there has been this idea that the population itself must have some characteristics to make it a nation state so that the population should have a common language or a common culture and so on. That, you know, in many ways, uh, this is uh, also a little bit a myth. Many scholars think that, you know, it's really the case. In, I, I tend to look at um, culture and language as very important um, components, as you know, in, in a theory of how um, borders, uh, you know, should be defined, are in practice defined, but not because uh, you can uh, have different groups uh, belonging to, you know, separate homogeneous categories. I think that's a mistake. I think it's more of a, very often it's more of like a continuum where people can be closer or farther from each other across several dimensions, linguistically, culturally, and they might feel closer or farther from the government, and that matters. So, so it's true that it does matter if you feel closer or farther from the government. That's part of the cost of living in a very large, heterogeneous um, country for some people might be, oh, I 
uh, have to share some public policies or public goods that are not uh, uh, exactly the one that I would prefer. So there is clearly that component, uh, but it's not uh, a zero-one situation where, oh, it's my group versus the out-group. So in that sense, I think we need to be much more uh, flexible when we think about uh, the definition of borders, uh, both historically and even nowadays. Could you talk to our audience a bit about the general theory about the size of countries? Like when we talk about an optimal size, what are we referring to? Who is the optimizing agent and what does he optimize? Yeah, no, that, so some some people like, you know refer to the work that I did. Uh, you know, when I started working with this, this was with Alberto Alessina, who was, you know, my mentor, you know, uh, in, in, in graduate school. And we started working on this in the late 90s. And then we wrote a book in the early 2000s, right, The Size of Nations. And in that book, the optimal size is only a few pages. It's a, it's a benchmark, right, that as an economist, you want to think about optimally what would kind of borders, you know, would be set. If you had a social planner that had some you know, wanted to, you know, to, to maximize some kind of welfare function. But that's a, as a benchmark against which to compare the actual borders, which have never been set by social planning. In fact, Alberto Lezina famously, in one of his earlier contributions to political economy, the study of economics and politics, wrote, social planners don't exist. It's, it's either, in the best case scenario, you would have the voters, if it's democratic, borders were democratically set, which historically has happened very rarely. These days you see more often people ask about borders, sometimes like in few countries, there are referendums, so, but it's still very rare. But you could think that, you could think, uh, uh, so you could have the optimal borders set by social planner with some, uh, some welfare um, objective in mind, for example, to maximize the sum of everybody's utilities. This would be the utilitarian social planner. Now, why would that make sense? Because you could think behind a veil of ignorance, you don't know who you're going to be in the world. You could be any of these, you know, any person. You could be a person that, you know, has a, uh, will live in a country where you happen to be ruled exactly by the kind of government with the language religion that, uh, that, you, that you grew up with, that you like. Or you could be at the periphery. You could be somebody that belongs to a minority who speaks a different language or a different religion. So if you want to be, a social planner, you have to take into account that uh, the trade-off that you would have between having, you know, living, uh, you know, in larger countries typically can come with benefits, with benefits, economies of scale, uh, you know, larger uh, extent of the market, if that matters, because let's say maybe if there are barriers to trade, they could also more easily defend it against foreign aggression if there is a risk of conflict, which is another important topic in this literature. So there are all these economies of scale, let's say, because uh, the public goods uh, are, you know, non-excludable. If you share the cost among a larger population, it, it's less, less costly per capita. But then there are there might be a cost of heterogeneity of the fact that people might not like exactly that kind of public good that they might prefer some other kind of public good. But because the public good in a country is non-excludable, everybody has to share that particular kind of policies. So there is a trade-off, and so a social planner would weight this trade-off and have countries that are large enough to, you know, to, um, to have, you know, the marginal benefits of size, you know, exactly, you know, such that it's, it's, it's offset optimally by this uh, marginal cost of heterogeneity. So that's one possible uh, approach. Now, that said, um, there is a different view of sometime of even uh, of optimality that 
is more inspired by the theory of justice of Rawls, John Rawls, the philosopher, uh, who, of course, had a very complex theory, but, uh, but one of the aspects was we should care more about the most disadvantaged, those that end up with the worst utility. So in that case, so let's say that rather than the utilitarian um, distribution of countries, you might think about a Rawlsian solution where it's really the periphery that matters the more. You would like to have borders that make the, the person that is the farther from the public good with the, still the highest possible utility. And it turns out, so some of the, one of the earliest results that we got in, our, in this literature theoretical result in our very you know, simplified model was that um, if you let the voters decide about the borders, so that let's say I have some given distribution of voters and say, I'm going to change the borders only if a majority of voters agrees in each country that to change the border, in each country involved by the change, each existing country, I want to change the borders only through majority voting. The majority voting equilibrium would be pretty close or you know, under some condition identical to the one that a Rawlsian social planner would choose. So it would be optimal in this sense, but it would be, the country would be much smaller, so it would be a more fragmented world, it would be a more inefficient world from the point of view of the utilitarian social planner, the one that would maximize the size of the pie, that would make everybody's utility you know, the maximum, the, the, the average utility the maximum. So even here, you can see that even from the purely optimal point of view, it depends a little bit on your philosophical views. You know, do you care more about the periphery or do you care more about the average? And so a word decided by voters, typically because uh, the voters, you know, very often might, might want to break up a country, even if it's efficient, because they themselves feel that they are too far from the government, especially if they cannot be compensated. That's another issue. If you could compensate people from being far from the government in terms of, but it's very hard to do that because these are not compensation based on uh, you know income, quite the opposite is based on your preferences. So you know, so it's very difficult, and also there is an issue of credibility that we discuss. So these are, kind of, but then of course you know a natural question would be to say, yeah, sure, but voting itself is pretty idealistic. I mean, you don't really have voting equilibrium. So what in practice, uh, you know, in practice, borders are very often or most often determined by rulers, by you know kings or dictators or aristocrats, and what they had in mind, what they were trying to optimize from their own, you know, more selfish point of view, were their own uh, power, their own rents. And so they were trying to do something that was not necessarily in the interest of the population. And very often, if they could ignore the preferences of people on the ground, very often borders were drawn very inefficiently, you know, very artificially. A typical case is Africa, which has been widely studied. You have artificial borders in Africa that cut through ethnic groups, uh, separate, uh, you know, groups that are very, you know, similar to each other, and then, uh, you know, maybe put together groups, uh, you know, ethnic groups that are, you know, have different cultures and languages. They create, uh, they created all sorts of uh, uh, artificiality that later some people have studied, you know, uh, uh, Michalopoulos and Papayuano would be, you know, a, a, good, a good example of this work. And then they have studied how this uh, had, had consequences even in the post-colonial period when the countries became independent following those artificial borders. So, so now another thing that very often Leviathans do is they just want to be as large as possible. So they create these huge empires, you know, the big colonial empires or, you know, the Russian empire, you know, and so on. And they put together in this empire, you know, all sorts of populations that might have different preferences, different views. And then they try sometimes to make this population more homogeneous by, you know, through policies that sort of impose a common language or a common religion. So in this sense, the Leviathans typically 
if uh, they can ignore the preferences of uh, people, this heterogeneity cost, they would tend to create nations that you can say in a rigorous way they are too large. So, you know, when you compare against the optimal benchmark. So you could, you know, so, so you could, uh, in this sense, uh, have, you know, sort of a, a welfare analysis that if uh, these colonial empires break up, up to a point, they are going to, you know, have, you know, this is going to be a welfare improvement. Because if they keep breaking up and voters, you know, decided that they want to have smaller and smaller countries and so on, you could end up with excessive fragmentation. You could end up that, you know, you could end up that from an efficiency point of view, maybe there should be sort of, you know, some ways of, um, uh, of uh, avoiding, you know, excessive secession. So in that sense, I think uh, economic analysis can provide, I think, uh, something that is really very badly needed in the world, uh, which is thinking that the, uh, there is, we shouldn't look very often at policies from an extremist point of view. Either, you know, very often you have, you read people that, you know, are in favor of secessions that would think that that is the paramount objective. You know, every, you know, self-determination, every kind, you know, every region in the world, you know, even, you know, every, even very small region should be, have the right to secede and so on. Uh, and that, you know, it's certainly part of the story, the self-determination, right? But at the same time, you have others who oppose it, said, oh, but this is going to create, um, you know, inefficiency, and it's all that matters are economies of scale, the big externalities from being enlarged. And economists approach to say, no, no, wait, it depends. There are costs and benefits. You have to weigh them. And then most importantly, you have to ask people on the ground. You have to let people have a voice. Uh, I think that also is very important. I mean, if you let things be done from top down, very often you end up with inefficient, inefficient solutions and, and something that, that clearly would, would have very, very high costs uh, for, for society. Of course, it's easier said to do that, but at least the economic, uh, the political economy and, and, and the economic approach to borders uh, provide um, a framework that can be used uh, to deal uh, also with very, very complicated you know, policy issues. One, maybe the most difficult policy issue of them all, because sovereign states are the most uh, complex and important institution, or one certain one of the most important institutions in the world. So, so to change uh, the borders, so to change the nature of this institution is probably one of the most extreme versions of policy that one can think of. Following on that, what a major imperial consistency that we find in urban economics is that most countries, the size distribution of their cities follows a power law where more or less the largest city is roughly twice the size of the second city, about three times the size of the largest city, and so on, the so-called zip slope. Is there a similar empirical consistency in the size distribution of countries across history? Uh, I would say yes and no, a typical answer by an economist, in the sense that some people have looked at it and in recent times, if you look at the data for 2000, Andrew Rose has a very interesting paper that was published a few years ago in the Journal of Money, Credit and Banking, where he looks um, at the size distribution of countries and he finds a, a slope, you know, minus one exactly in this kind of regression, the same that is used, you know, is used for, for the cities, so that it looks like the zip law would be satisfied for countries in recent time. But when he looks at the beginning of the 20th century, he finds that the coefficient is, is much smaller, it's 0.7. That would mean that there were, there were many more large countries that you would expect based on a zip slope, right? So it would be like in a, in, in a, if you have the analog with the cities, when you have a, a coefficient that is much you know, below 
One is when you are in a, in a society where most people live in very large cities, much more than you would expect, in, in like, much more than in the United States where the Zips law works. So why could that be? I mean, there are two different views about Zips law. Some are say this is a very important empirical regularity that could, you know, really should, should also uh, inspire some theory that, uh, you know, some economic, that's certainly done for cities. Other people take it more like a statistical artifact. I, I don't have a stand about this in general, but I believe that it's very interesting to study what, uh, you know, what the empirical regularities are, because I suspect, uh, I mean, if I have to give you my hunch, that one thing that might be going on during the 20th century is something that was a little bit related to what we discussed before. So that we started with uh, uh, where a lot of countries were sort of very large and uh, very often rule from the center. In an, there were colonial empires. There were not. Uh, there was not certainly a lot of democracy or democratization involved in borders. And then during the 20th century, with up and downs, you know, during, there were periods where the 1920s and 30s, where there was even a more dictatorial and conflictual world than the one in, in previous in previous times, even before World War One. But if you take over the trend over the whole century, all the way to the end of the 20th century, beginning of the uh, 21st century, you see that uh, overall there has been the formation of many more countries, more numerous countries. Uh, many small countries have become independent. And the distribution has become more similar to the distribution of cities in that sense. Maybe one could say, if one really you know, want to take you know, sort of a leap of faith to say, maybe it has become a little bit more natural than it was before, less unnatural than it was before. But that, you know, that's up you know, for discussion. But, uh, but certainly this is a very interesting area of research. At the theoretical level, how would you say urbanization patterns could impact the size of countries? Yeah, so so the it's very important. I mean, the size of countries clearly um, is impacted by many factors that determine you know this trade-off between cost and benefits from size. And uh, one of the you know one of the um, it's it's very it's very important from the point of view from the point of view of uh, um, the benefits of of the extent of the country. To what extent, for example, there is a, a large mobility of factors of trade, you know, within a country, for example. So a very important point is that these days we have that within countries we tend to have a very sort of integrated markets, domestic markets. It used to be the case that in the past, sometimes urbanization was linked also to cities that had some autonomy about, even within country, technically within country, they had some autonomy over uh, you know, the tariffs that they would impose. You, know, you arrive to the walls of the city you know, and you have to pay a tariff or a price to get inside the city and so on. So that is, you know, is no longer the case. So from that point of view, within a country, whether you know, your population is distributed across cities or in the countryside, so as long as there is, a, as there is you know, Free mobility to move, you know, probably that has become a little bit less relevant, I would expect. But uh, what it might still be very important, though, is the political implications of having larger cities. And this has been studied by urban economists. For instance, you know, Addison and Glazer have a paper, you know, a long time ago in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, where they show that uh, this links again to that issue of democratization. More, less democratic uh, countries tend to have, on average, much larger capital cities. 
So, so that is a, an interesting aspect of the the big uh, the you know the bigger uh, rents of power that sometimes the Leviathan obtains or the ruler traditionally obtain by trying to exploit the economies of scale while you know sometimes ignoring the heterogeneity rather than having many many different cities with different sort of cultures and you know different local cultures. Uh, very often the Leviathan tended to centralize. So, so this is related to the extent of centralization. So the extent of centralization and the, uh, is linked to urbanization in this sense, I would say, although I'm not an expert on, on urbanization itself, but I would think that that's an important link. So, uh, so that the, the, the political aspect, people have studied, uh, have studied uh, the, the political aspect, you know, the, 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 also the location, of course, of the capital city is very important, you know, where, whether it's at the center or, the, or whether, you know, sometimes rulers would move the capital city, like in Brasilia from Rio or in other places, would move the capital away in order to have more control and uh, prevent, you know, riots uh, or, you know, revolutions. So, so there are, you know, interesting, you know, aspects that connect urbanization to political factors and to the size of nations. Other area that has attracted a lot of attention within the literature that you help create is basically this relationship between trading opportunities and the size of the countries. So the, I would say that the correlations are too evident to obviate. What it's not clear is, to me at least, is the causal chains. Do larger trading opportunities create incentives for smaller, smaller nations to survive and thrive? Or do the creation of smaller countries require them to be more open in order for them to exist in the very first place? Yeah, no, that's a very, very interesting question. This is definitely one of the areas where we, you know, we have done, you know, the most work, both, you know, with Alberto Alessina originally and also with another important co-author, Roman Bagzerg. We wrote a paper together, um, uh, Alberto Alessina, Roman Bagzerg, and myself, uh, uh, called Economic Integration and Political Disintegration, where we were studying exactly this kind of relationship between um, uh, higher economic integration, uh, international integration, uh, creating incentives for breakup of countries, and you would certainly see uh, a very strong correlation there. But I absolutely agree that also the causality goes in the other direction. When you start uh, having uh, smaller nations, each smaller country would have a stronger you know, incentive in principle uh, to reduce the barriers to trade, all other things being equal, although not every you know, country eventually would do that. So, so clearly the, the causality... I I, was, I wrote also another paper uh, by myself where I was I showed that in in some in some circumstances you might have even multiple equilibria where you could have that everybody expects everybody else to be very much close to trade and uh, and also the other aspects if you everybody also expects um, to 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 be very aggressive or to use force or to use conflict which also would reduce trade because there is a correlation also sometimes between conflict and trade. So in a world that is very with high barriers to trade and high conflict, you have a very strong incentive to create large countries, to be large. So you definitely want to be large. You want to be large to have a large domestic market because you cannot trade much with your neighbors and also to defend yourself. And because uh, this world will also be more conflictual, there will also be you know, less trade as, as a result of that. Uh, but if you expect uh, that there will be low barriers to trade and that people will use force less uh, to, you know, to solve international disputes, uh, then you could live in a more peaceful world where there is more economic integration and where there would be also, um, you know, the size of countries can be small. It doesn't need necessarily to be small. I mean, it's not that you have to break up your country if you don't want. 
But if there is some other reasons why uh, some groups would like to form their own country, and that happens peacefully uh, without you know using conflict or anything, like that, that would be an equilibrium. That would be an equilibrium that would be sustained because now there is a lot of international trade. This is, I think, is kind of the ideal of David Hume, who is one of my favorite philosophers. David Hume, a Scottish philosopher of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, that said, nothing is more favorable to the rise of politeness, which he meant of a civilization in general, culture, and learning, than a number of neighboring and independent states connected together by commerce and policy. So this would be, I think, the sort of the Enlightenment idea where you would have that commerce, but also some policy coordination on some major you know, matters would go together with neighboring and independent states. So, that, that's, so that's also a possible equilibrium. So that would kind of be a self-fulfilling equilibrium. A derivative question on borders that I found quite interesting is the potential viability of overlapping jurisdictions. For example, if we go back to the medieval Europe, we find the church and the local states acting as governance institutions, often competing, but often cooperating as well, working in the same geographical space. We, of course, do not see this anymore. Yet the question kind of remains, is there any advantage to a world like that? And if so, why do we see this kind of overlapping jurisdictions anymore? Yeah, that's, I think that's an extremely, extremely important question because from a purely theoretical point of view, if you could have different jurisdictions set up for different kinds of public goods, right? At different levels and for different territories, that might be in principle more efficient. So if you have a few public goods where the heterogeneity costs are relatively low, most people tend to agree. There are very large economies of scale. You want to have very large jurisdictions. You want, And then for others, they tend to be more, um, you know, where the heterogeneity cost might be higher and where people might disagree more in different areas or the economies of scale might be lower, you want to have smaller jurisdictions. Now, uh, now we do this now, but we do it in a hierarchical way. We don't do it uh, by creating jurisdictions that they are all sovereign by themselves, right? We, so we create, uh, let's say, the nation state, typically, or the federal state, maybe in some case, which is, uh, has the monopoly of coercion you know, in Washington, let's say, or in, you know, in Berlin, and they are the, the sovereign states where, you know, defense and foreign policy, some of the most important. And then we create, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the states like Massachusetts or Virginia or Texas, uh, where there is, a, you know, some policies are decentralized, but they are subordinate to the main state. They cannot do things, you know, that's very different from what you mentioned, like the church and the emperor, uh, the emperor, you know, that were, both, uh, you know, rulers their own way. There was a lot of conflict among that. So, so now some people have argued that some of the ideas behind uh, the uh, the European Union originally, by some at least of more utopian interpretation of the European Union, that the European Union could be a club that people could join that 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 could have some functions that would be almost like overlapping so to to the national states. Having its own sovereignty, not depending on the on the on the nation, you know, on the sovereignty of the nation states, but not being necessarily on top of the nation states. Now, why is it harder to do that? It's hard to do that because of the monopoly of coercion. That is the fundamental. Who is at the end? Somebody, especially in a world where uh, where you know, you know, it's possible. As economists, we know that 
suppose that you have to provide for public goods. You know, people will not necessarily do it voluntarily, right? There is the need to enforcement sometimes, or there is the need. Uh, otherwise, there, there is a very large uh, risk of free riding. So, who is going to and so so one major issue is uh, you know who you know somebody has to have the the ultimate monopoly of question. So, who is ruling? And this was always a big issue, in, and it continues to be a big issue in the European Union. Who is in charge eventually? Is it the law that comes from Brussels, uh, from all the different nation, nations and states of the European Union, but eventually it is, uh, is that the law that rules, or is it the local, you know, is the national law that rules? And uh, we know that you know, the German constitutional law, uh, constitutional court uh, came after with rulings uh, about that that were controversial. Um, we know that Brexit was partly motivated by the fear that uh, maybe eventually Westminster would have to subordin be subordinated to Brussels. So, so they attempted to create... So at the end, uh, it's probably the most sustainable situation would be a hierarchical rule where you have a federal structure. So if you are a strong believer in European integration, eventually you say, well, but the, the final equilibrium would be the United States of Europe, where there would be... Event, you know, it would not be the Holy Roman Empire, which was not holy, was not Roman, it was not an empire, right? <laughs> and so, so that is, uh, so that's the challenge. Uh, but that said, uh, you know, some people say that we do have kind of some overlapping jurisdiction, even though, like the postal system, uh, you know, the, the agreements about the postal system. You know, there are some things that work cooperatively that involve a lot of different countries that are a little bit, you know, su so, uh, supranational. Um, but there are still the exception. I mean, at the end, I could say that you know the nation state is you know is not going to die anytime soon. I mean, the, the, the nation state, in the sense that we define at the very beginning, when you ask what was the nation, uh, I would say the sovereign state that has the monopoly of coercion, of legal coercion, and who has the real ultimate control of its territory, is still there to stay. Following on that, now that you talk about the Holy Roman Empire, how effective do you think? The decentralization approach is to actually maintain the unity of a state. Is there a stable equilibrium, or is or is not? Yeah, the, the, that that issue is. Um, I think it became very very important, especially when the Soviet Union broke up. You know, if you read the work done by now, of course, it has become again very prominent in the news because uh, you have somebody like Putin who claims that that was uh, you know a, a you know. A, Huge, uh, you know, tragedy from his point of view that the Soviet Union broke up and you know and was broken up in fifteen different states, and he blames Lenin and the Bolsheviks for having decentralized uh, the, the the created a federal structure where Ukraine already had its own government, even had the seat at the United Nations, you know, even during the Soviet Union or you know Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, they were all already states, part of the sovereign states. With the, of course, during Stalin. It became a you know a complete shamble. There was really no power decentralized because everything was decentralized in Moscow. But the but with the return uh, to some form of democracy, uh, there was a there was a, a some you know power that was clearly you know, clearly Yeltsin had power in Moscow and and so on. So so the idea that decentralizing could lead to a breakup of the country or fragmentation has been uh, raised by some. Uh, but but other people have made the opposite argument, right? You can say if you decentralize, if you may, you give a lot of autonomy to uh, some um, local governments, 
they might have less of an incentive to form their own country because a lot of the policies they care about might already be carried at the local level. And so when I, I, I look into this, uh, and I also had, you know, wrote some models about this, and I, I reached the conclusion that really here there are really two effects, and sometimes you could have, you know, no monotonic relationship. There is a direct effect of decentralization that, um, that would make you less willing to break up because the more you decentralize and the more autonomy you give to the periphery, the less reason there would be to break up. So in that sense, but there is an indirect effect that by, may, by decentralizing, you create more capability at the periphery. So you create, a, a, you know, you, the periphery can create, have its own structure, its own uh, state uh, uh, institutions. So you can have a, you can have a local, a local guard sometime. And uh, if there are very, very strong reasons for a breakup uh, or very strong incentives for a breakup, at that point, the decentralization of autonomy would facilitate the breakup. So you can see that the relationship is really no monotonic. Now, it doesn't mean that decentralization is bad because the breakup of the Soviet Union, from my, in my opinion, was a good thing, <laughs> was not a bad thing. Uh, it was, uh, this is a typical case. We're going back to the origins of, you know, to back, going back to the, the, the beginning of this discussion where we said, you know, what are these big uh, nations, uh, big colonial, because Russia itself was a big colonial empire, which had included many populations that were farther linguistically, religiously, culturally from Moscow, and had been submitted by the Tsar, but certainly in a non-democratic setting, the same way that certainly London and Paris and Rome had occupied territories in Africa and other parts of the world that didn't belong to them. That, that, that they, so in that sense, the breakup of any kind of very large Leviathan Empire, colonial empire, um, is, a, you know, is, a, is, is well for improving in, 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 in general even though it can come with very large transactional costs, especially if it is not done peacefully. Uh, now, Czechoslovakia broke up peacefully, but Yugoslavia broke up very, you know, very, uh, you know, violently. So the real problem is not as much, uh, the real problem in general is not as much uh, would decentralization create a breakup, but would decentralization make it for a more peaceful and cooperative solution? which I think is where we always have to, you know, we always have to try because we have to minimize conflicts over borders, which is, you know, the real problem or population fighting each other over borders or over public policies or over anything or over territories. And because we know historically that this is a frequent reason for conflict, we have to try to make it, but, but also it doesn't mean that, but at the same time satisfying the, the desire for population for self-determination. I mean, the solution... You could have, a, you know, like the Pax Romana, you know, the Roman peace, uh, that uh, peace of the emperor. The emperor rules everything and everybody has to shut up. That is a bad equilibrium. We don't want that. I mean, it's, so it's not just peace, it's peace, but also self-determination. And again, we have this um, trade-off between the big economies of scale of being all in larger jurisdictions that are, you know, you know well-organized and so on. But also we have uh, this... Uh, the fact that people, different people have different preferences over public policies, and you want to make the, uh, the governments as close as possible to the preferences of the people. And, and these are, this is a, a trade-off. I mean, economists, of course, you know, we have two hands for this reason, right? I mean, on the one hand, on the other hand. And that's the great advantage of an economic approach. You cannot have your cake you know, and eat it too. And you have to make decisions. But some decisions are better than others. It doesn't mean that, you know, because we have two hands, you know, you know, you know, if one hand slaps you and the other, you know, caresses you, they are both good, right? 
you you have to you have to have a, a policies that also are morally defensible. And I think in that sense uh, that are to the advantage of the largest possible number of people, and in particular, um, certainly, and I, again, in this, I tend to be more Rossian, it is also very important that people at the periphery of people that are historically more marginalized, they should have special attention, which is also very important uh, when we think about these issues. We certainly don't want, uh, you know, the borders be determined by the different centers of the world or by the ruling elites of the world, ignoring, you know, everybody else. So far, we've kind of talked about populations as if they were fixed within a locality. So what about migration? And this goes to the example of the Soviet Union, because they were famous for their policies of basically forcefully moving people from places to others to make it more Russian. And this is especially yeah. important today. Yes. So, and this is not just a, a, a topic here you know, or in Russia. It's kind of one of the most debated topics is if migration, either forced or voluntarily, can change the demographics and cultural attitudes of nations, and skew them to a different political equilibrium. Is this a real situation to be concerned with? Yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, I think we have to be concerned about uh, some rulers uh, using immigrants as, as weapons or, or even moving a population as weapons for their own purposes. This is certainly something that I believe we have. For, for the reasons that you mentioned, it goes back uh, to the to the fact that, that Leviathans, that rulers have a very strong incentive to make their population more homogeneous, more you know, more try to reduce diversity, to you know, to to, to minimize the diversity of their population, and uh, and that uh, you know, unfortunately, moving populations around or even you know, sometimes ethnic cleansing, which is even more dramatic, because sometimes it's also you know, killing some of the population. Uh, but 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 sometimes you you know, you, even if you don't kill the population, you prevent them from speaking their own languages. So you 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 know you Say nobody can, uh, you know. Now everybody's forced to learn, uh, you know, the official language of the ruler. So these, I think, will continue to be concerned. I mean, we always think that these are problems of the past, but unfortunately, they are not. I mean, you can certainly see this in Russia, but this has, you know, this has happened frequently in the history of the world. So certainly, this is something, and there are international treaties against that. I mean, that's you know part of the definition of genocide is attempted to suppress, to suppress uh, cultures and languages of, of population. Now, uh, a different issue, of course, is when people move because they want to. Uh, that, I think, is uh, uh, so when you, we think about voluntary flows of population, which has also been always a very important feature in the history of humanity. The history of humanity, his story is a history of migrants. And, um, you know, uh, from, you know, the out of Africa migration uh, all over the world, uh, you know, happening tens of thousands of, of, um, of years ago uh, to, you know, you know, many more recent. I myself, you know, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Italy. I moved to the United States. I became a, an, 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 a, a, a U.S. citizen while keeping my Italian citizenship. My wife is Brazilian, so coming from a country that itself was a country of immigrants, and and uh, and so uh, she had Italian citizenship at the time because some of her ancestors came from Italy, and so so she has three passports. Well, I have two, and my son has three passports, being born in the United States. So clearly, there is a. Um, um, when we start to having people with multiple citizenships that can move from one country to the other, that you know, ra that uh, raises a lot of very interesting theoretical issues about the number and size of nations, which uh, I always saw as a bit of the missing chapter in uh, our book with Alberto, because uh, we had you know we never wrote a chapter about migrations, the, the effect of migration 
on um, on the number of on, on the number and size of nations, which I think is is very important. So, but we have been thinking, we thought about it, but eventually we didn't write it. But if we if I have to think about what happened over the past twenty years so since we wrote the book, it's clear that that's an important component. For some, in some aspects, I believe uh, the mechanism is similar to the effects of uh, international trade or you know general international exchange, in the sense that you can imagine that in a world where there are very high barriers, where borders are also because borders, you know, how thick are the borders, right? You could think about. So you can think that borders can be very thick or very thin. Uh, borders can be barriers or not. The two different forms of exchange. So if borders, we already discussed that if borders are very uh, high barriers to international trade, this creates an incentive to form larger countries. Right? That We discussed that. Now, a similar effect in principle could hold if borders are big barriers to the movement of people. Right? So if, you, if everybody in the world prevented people from moving across borders. And if, if we had very much uh, policies against all sorts of movement of people, and of course, people, people move for all sorts of reasons. They could move for tourism, which is a form of trade. It's already a move, movement of people. Or they can move because they want to live somewhere else for a temporary period, which is temporary migration as workers. Or they can move to settle definitely in a different place and become citizens there and have children there, which of course has political implications. Because then, of course, there is the whole issue of how do you provide citizenship to people who move? But if we prevent all this and say, oh, it's only within the borders of a country that people can move, otherwise, you, you know, then you imagine that this would create incentive to form a much larger country because, you know, if I'm in a small country, I'm trapped. While if I'm... So this would be a force towards unification, but it would not be a very happy world because it would be a world of isolated fortresses which do not communicate with each other. And it's like the same, it's even worse than the trade blocks. You don't want a world of trade blocks. This was a big fear that many people that are in favor of free trade, like Baguadi others had, when people think about regional integration at the trade level. You know, if we form these trade blocks, these trade blocks may be very open within themselves, but then very high barriers towards the other blocks. So, so certainly we don't want something like that for the mobility. I mean, economists have always been, in general, very much, you know, with some exception, but in general, very much emphasizing the efficiency of having the factors of production, you know, moving in general. And certainly there are, you know, clearly economic benefits from migration. Now, as political economists, now we know that, you know, when you put into the picture also politics and culture, you know, this goes also, you know, there are also implications that go beyond the economic cost and benefits. Here, from this point of view, I think that in principle, the, the fact that migration is a very important policy issue, it can work both, uh, in, in this case, uh, both as, a, as an issue that would lead to forming smaller or larger political units, depending on how heterogeneous are some regions in the world compared to the, to the policy. I will make an example. Uh, you know, take Brexit. Brexit uh, is not really the breakup of a country because the United Kingdom uh, was not clearly, you know, the, the, and as part of the EU was not a, a region that broke up from a country, but it's certainly a breakup from a supranational uh, organization that had some features of clearly of you know a political jurisdiction, a large political jurisdiction. So so it was certainly a breakup, um, and was partly, of course, not entirely, but partly motivated by the fact that at least some people that were proposing Brexit user, and you know sometimes you know maybe even uh, in. A, instrumental way, but certainly they use uh, 
the policies that were perceived as more pro-immigrants within the European Union and the mobility of people within the European Union as something for which you know you should that you should fear. You should not, you know, you should fear the immigrants coming from Poland or coming from outside Europe, but then eventually coming to the UK. And that's one reason why we should have Brexit. Now, so that was one motivation. So here you can see that the fear of immigration leading to Brexit. But then you could imagine that Scotland would have different views about, about, about you know, what it is that, you know, that what are the appropriate policy with respect to integration, you know, integration, trading, commercial integration, but also integration with the rest of Europe or mobility. So the Scots might say, oh, but we want to be more integrated with Europe. And in fact, they, they did. And, and so, so even though they had voted very narrowly against independence in 2014, two years later, when Brexit happened, some Scots felt almost betrayed. They said, oh, now if we were to vote again, we might want to break up because we want to be more integrated with Europe and maybe welcome the immigrants. So you see that it's not so necessarily that the attitude that people have toward immigrants uh, would, uh, you know, you know univocally lead to breakup of countries or formation of larger countries. It depends very much on the preference of the people on the ground. And it could work, in my view, it could go either way. Uh, but it is clearly the case that it would be, it's an important force. It's an important force because it's a force in general, you know, there, there is heterogeneity. There are different views about, you know, how to deal with immigrants. And it, it continues to be one of the, you know, principal, you know, issues of debate within, um, within, <coughs> sorry, within Europe or, or within the, the world in general. Now, my own view is, is a typical view of an economist that would think that, again, there are, you know, we shouldn't throw away the, you know, the baby with the dirty water. And we should absolutely, completely uh, take into account that, um, you know, the whole world probably would not be as developed as it is if we didn't have a lot of movements of people over time. I mean, eventually, I, maybe I'm biased because I benefited from having, you know, a country like the United States, which has a traditional policy of letting people come, getting, you know, getting settled, um, you know, obtain a citizenship uh, and so on. There is, um, there is the right of the, of the, you know, you solely, the right of the, of the, of the soil, of the, uh, you you become a citizen if you are born there. So my son, is, you know, is is a is a U.S. citizen just because he was born. You know that, which is not the case in Italy, by the way. Where if you are born in Italy but you are a child of immigrants, you're not automatically an Italian citizen. So some countries have, have you know have a, a, a tradition that is uh, that that is more welcoming with immigrants than others. But of course, we know that that has you know has been changing. Even the history of the United States. As, uh, as periods during the 1920s where there were very high barriers to migration that certainly had implications. So in that sense, uh, my view is that on balance, uh, uh, in sort of orderly, peaceful, and consensual and free movement of people, like the same is true for trade, tend to be associated with better outcomes on average for everybody. Uh, but they can also be uh, a, you know, a, a subject for very, very strong political conflict. And, and, and therefore, we certainly want to avoid that. And certainly want to avoid, because the other important thing is that, that uh, immigrants sometimes are studied in economics like workers, but there is a famous saying that say, you know, we wanted workers and you know, we got human beings. In reality, immigrants are human beings with preferences, with political preferences, cultural preferences, and so on. And therefore, we have to take that into account as well. 
And, um, you know, the last thing that, of course, we will want is the last thing I will say about this is uh, forced assimilation. That would be the worst. So, you know, say, oh, if you come here, you have to forget your language. You have to forget your culture. You have to, uh, that would be, that would be a huge mistake. This is certainly that, you know, in, in, in the past, some, you know, some, um, some societies, you know, were going into that direction, but that is typically something that I think should be, should be absolutely, you know, condemned because uh, that, that, that would have huge cost, not only for the immigrant, but for everybody. One final question that I would like to ask is your perspective on a world without borders. First, is it possible? And the way in which I perceive that is more or less into two scenarios. Theoretically speaking, maybe one would be akin to a world with infinite overlapping governance institutions, which is kind of wow. a libertarian utopia, or a world where only one state exists, which is a socialist utopia. Do you think any of these scenarios are plausible? Well, my, my, my personal reaction to this is a very, very interesting, provocative question. My immediate reaction would be this would be too dystopious. It would be dystopic. It would be uh, that, that would be... Uh, very often, by pursuing utopias, you know, we end up with dystopias. Uh, and uh, so the uh, now I can understand, uh, you know, both both dreams come from, you know, like all utopian dreams, come from a basis, you know, there is always a a, a grain of you know reason in this, in the sense that uh, ideally, you know, ideally, if uh, if we could uh, have um, a world where we manage to have. Uh, as much decentralization and autonomy you can, et cetera, et cetera. But there is a, some major way to coordinate all of us on the truly important issues that are global. You know, there are some issues where the public good has economies of scale that are so large and the externalities are so enormous, right, that you really want, uh, you know, and you would really like to have uh, some policies where, you know, you, you would have... Uh, Coordination at the highest possible level. Now, to but doesn't mean that. But then the question is, would you give sovereignty to just one government, right? So, 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 do we want to have the monopoly of coercion, of the monopoly of force, the monopoly of power, just in one government? I think here is like in economy, say you are putting all the eggs in one basket, right? I mean, it, it's it should be extremely risky. And moreover, once you have a, an elite a government in charge that to whom you have given, you know, okay, you are, you know, the final word, whatever happens in the world, the chances that this would be um, non-democratic is enormous. So you end up, you know, creating an empire. Typically, you would very, very large empire. Eventually, you would go from the Roman Republic to Augustus and then Tiberius and then Caligula, you know. And so, you know, as an historian, you know, you can appreciate those risks. So I would say the one word, I think, is extremely dystopian. And we know that, you know, the heterogeneity cost would be enormous. On the other hand, everybody independent is also a dystopian. It doesn't work that way because there is free riding. I mean, this is the libertarian utopia because I believe that public goods matter and people do not really provide public goods, you know, in voluntary. I mean, we can think about all sorts of causal arrangements and, you know, and, you know and, but in practice, uh, we saw that, you know, with COVID, uh, you know, health emergency, we see in many cases, at some point, you need the state, or at least you need a public authority, you need somebody to coordinate. And if somebody attacks somebody else, you need military alliances. I mean, I would say, you know, you need NATO to protect yourself from, you know, aggression or something like that. But 
okay, that's an alliance, uh, but you know, you need, uh, you know, certainly, I cannot defend myself completely. I, I'm happy that there are, you know, there is a state to protect my rights. So I'm willing to give up some of my freedom, you know, to, to make us a king. But, uh, you know, with balances, so with, with checks and balances, the fact of having a lot of different states in the world is a form of checks and balances, if you think about it. Uh, so, so I would say that a world where there are, you know, hundreds of independent states that are, you know, that are connected together by commerce and policy, as David Hume said, but where if something goes wrong in one state, I can run somewhere else. Some people said that was the secret of European prosperity. Hume himself, I think, said that. In fact, Hume in different contexts, that uh, you know, maybe you, you know, you know, the Spaniards, uh, you know, suddenly they 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 become very much, you know intolerant uh, of uh, minorities, they kick out to the Jews, they kick, you know, they suppress, you know, must, and, but, but, but then uh, Spinoza can go to the Netherlands, or, you know, the ancestors of Spinoza can go to the Netherlands, or, you know, or, um, you know, you can run away from, you know, from one bad state to a, another that would be, you know, more democratic or more tolerant and so on. So in that sense, I think a multiplicity of states, but each of them providing public goods that in the libertarian utopia cannot be provided privately. I don't think that the private market themselves would be you know, enough to create in that area. I'm completely you know, and not in favor of a complete, and uh, including you know, policy in the borders themselves. Obviously you, you cannot also, utopia where anybody can, you know, the borders don't exist, uh, like in the in Imagine by John Lennon. I mean, it's great as a song, it's a very nice song, but if borders didn't exist, it would look much more like the situation where, you know, the, 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 the tanks of Putin walks over Ukrainian, you know, the Ukrainian border than the situation where, you know, the utopia situation where we can go wherever we want to without problems. Uh, we need, uh, uh, we need uh, some, uh, some, uh, some policing of borders for, to, pro to provide, uh, to make sure that, uh, that we don't have um, all sorts of, all sorts of, uh, uh, bad outcomes in terms of uh, public security and so on, um, but but it has to be done in a way that is uh, you know respectful of human rights, uh, that is uh, respectful of uh, you know the, the final goals uh, that have to decide democratically in each in each of the different in each of the different countries. So I think that the borders are here to stay, frankly, and the nation states or the sovereign states, I should say, the sovereign states are here to stay for a long time. We just have to make sure that they are a little bit less uh, dictatorial or invasive uh, and uh, a little bit more, you know, mindful. Also, people that don't think like, the, you know, the center or more mindful of the rights of the minorities of the periphery. That, I think, is the, it's, it's a marginal improvement that has to be made, not a completely utopian thing. Let's throw, you know, as I said before, another cliche that, uh, that 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 is it's you know very often it's worth repeating because it adds up very often to be true is throwing away the baby with the dirty water. I mean it's a cliche, but you certainly very often that has happened historically, and uh, we don't want that. We want and so we want I think to improve the current uh, way in which um, the states are organized by having by being the more democratic, where the the voters have more to say about things including the borders themselves. I don't think that it should be a big taboo to withdraw borders occasionally, but if everybody agrees, if everybody agrees, I mean, everybody, not unanimous because you cannot do that, but at least through appropriate majority voting and you know appropriate procedures, 
you know, indeed, I think it was admirable that um, that the Scots were asked about the their borders. I think that is something that I, we should have more of things like that. Uh, but uh, at the same time, we certainly, you know, cannot live in a utopia where borders are drawn every moment, depending just by the whims of uh, you know small groups of people. I mean, it has to be done in a very consensual way, like a constitutional change, like a constitutional change. Well, thank you very much for your time, Professor. It has oh, been a pleasure you. having you. Great questions. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for what you're doing. And uh, and thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Mm. The size of political jurisdictions and by extension of the borders between them result from historical contingencies and structural factors that may be specific to each society in a given space and time frame. Yet, an economic approach allows us to better grasp the general mechanisms at play. It guides our understanding of the whys and not just focus on the hows or wheres. After all, economics as a social science strives towards understanding the building and creation of human societies, of which the delimitation of its space is just one aspect of. has been Penn's Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn underscore exchange. Stay tuned.